Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 14 on April 9th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Raleigh Parrish, the founder and webmaster of flightweb.com. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from episode 13 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I received two emails from listeners regarding episode 13, and they both said that they really enjoyed the podcast and to keep up the good work. Thank you. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, to be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email me or call me if it is not. I have been trying to identify all air medical and critical care transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. I did post up a few more pages this week. I cannot link to Facebook group pages, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. Contact me if you have any questions about this. As I mentioned last week, I am going to be rolling out a sponsorship program for the Air Medical Today podcast this month. I am looking for both corporate and individual sponsors, so watch for announcements and a new page on the Air Medical Today website. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the Air Medical world. The Maryland House of Delegates set aside $20 million in the state's capital budget to help replace helicopters in the aging state police medevac fleet. The Maryland Senate did not set the money aside for helicopters, so the two chambers will have to negotiate whether to set the money aside. The state of Maryland currently uses 11 helicopters purchased between 1989 and 1999, One helicopter crashed in September 2008, killing four people and prompting extra scrutiny of the system. Manitoba, Canada's air ambulance program has upgraded its fleet with a $6 million injection of funds from the province. The funds were used to purchase another Citation C-560 life flight jet to replace an older plane in the program. 
The aircraft has modifications allowing it to land on gravel airport runways, giving access to more than 50 additional communities in northern and remote areas. Every year, life flight jets transport about 600 critically ill Manitobans. A group of critical care physicians, emergency physicians, and obstetricians provide 24-hour medical coverage for the program. Health Minister Teresa Oswald said that the province is also considering a helicopter. After announcing plans to open a permanent operation at the Hollister Municipal Airport almost two years ago, CalSTAR's plans have yet to reach fruition. Two years ago, the Hollister area was a perfect spot for a CalSTAR base, according to Regional Director Michael Bollich. He said it had a high rate of fatal crashes and it was immune to the dense fog like other areas. But with the economic downturn, CalSTAR, a nonprofit emergency responder, has raised fewer donations and fewer people are driving in the area, causing a lower number of accidents. The Hollister base opening, which would be CalSTAR's 11th in the state, has been delayed before. CalSTAR's original plan was to have the base open by April 2009, but because of the economy, it postponed the completion to later in the summer. The service has a building at the airport, but does not staff it full-time or keep a helicopter there. It does occasionally use the spot to transfer patients from Hazel Hawkins Memorial Hospital, however. The timing of a possible CalSTAR base opening in Hollister, meanwhile, depends on a decision over air ambulance coverage in Monterey County. Its leaders are in the process of requesting bids for a local air ambulance system after nine years of service by CalSTAR. The county wants to find an air ambulance service that will cost its residents the least while maintaining high quality. FAA Administrator Randy Babbitt said NextGen isn't as far advanced as it should be. Lack of collaboration and policy changes, not technology, will be the obstacles that could trip up the Federal Aviation Administration's deployment of a new air traffic control system, aviation specialists said at a conference on Tuesday this week. The success of NextGen, an ambitious $20 billion program to replace the nation's aging radar-based air traffic control system with a satellite-based network by 2020, will depend on breaking down stovepiped operations to increase cooperation. Unclear policies such as who should have access to flight information data and who will pay to equip planes with the new technology will continue to delay next-gen representatives at the conference said. The FAA also must train its workforce on next-gen technologies. The agency last week released a 10-year plan for recruiting, hiring, and training air traffic controllers, but said it has yet to determine what impact the new system will have on staffing. In a letter from the National Transportation Safety Board to the FAA, the board asked that the FAA tighten its procedures for reporting lost aircraft and also in getting radar data quickly to the Air Force. The board said miscommunication, a lack of trained personnel, and other problems are hindering rescue efforts. The Air Force Rescue Coordination Center in Florida, the agency chiefly responsible for getting inland searches started, said it helped launch searches for 227 missing planes and helicopters in 2008. 
The action by the NTSB was precipitated by a 78-year-old Ohio businessman who was flying to his home in Cincinnati from Hilton Head, South Carolina. He was reported missing by his family after he failed to arrive that evening. The pilot had freed himself from the plane wreck and, though badly injured, activated an emergency signal. For nearly six hours, the letters EMRG flashed on radar scopes at a Federal Aviation Administration facility near Atlanta, giving air traffic controllers a general idea of his location. It was a full two days before the rescuers arrived, however, and he did not survive. The NTSB, in its letter, placed most of the responsibility for the mix-up on the Air Force. But the board also said the FAA manager should have realized that a search had not gotten underway when the Air Force controller didn't reply that a case had been opened. After the manager made his report to the Air Force, FAA controllers continued to discuss the signal, but they didn't take further action because they believed they had reported it properly. The FAA, in conjunction with the Helicopter Association International, announced this week the 2010 Helicopter Safety Seminar. The seminar will bring together FAA representatives, helicopter operators from public use agencies, air medical, and the news media, along with various aviation groups and local operators, to discuss a broad range of subjects related to safety during helicopter operations in Southern California areas. The event is scheduled for Tuesday, April 20th, 2010 in Burbank. A man has been fined after he admitted sealing 100 charity bags belonging to the Great North Air Ambulance in England. Wayne Burbeck was working as a charity collector when he was stopped by police who spotted him picking up the bags in red car in December 2009. The 33-year-old was employed by Where on Earth to collect charity bags on behalf of RNLI and kidney research charities, but decided to naively pick up the Great North Air Ambulance bags as well. The prosecutor in the case said that Burbeck was found with 450 pounds worth of secondhand clothes in the rear of his van. Burbeck had apparently fallen on hard times after losing his job as a gas fitter and had only been working for the charity for two weeks when the offense occurred. All the bags were returned to Great North, and Burbeck was never paid for the two weeks' work he carried out for Where on Earth. He was fined 90 pounds and was ordered to pay 150 pounds in court costs and a 15-pound victim surcharge. Bicyclists from EMS services in South Carolina will honor their fallen compatriots in a bicycle ride between April 13th and 15th. The purpose of the three-day ride from Columbia to Myrtle Beach is to bring awareness to the hazards of their jobs and to honor those who have died in the line of duty and those who have died after a lifelong career in emergency services. The riders will pedal from Columbia to Kingstree on April 13th, then to Conway the following day. In Conway, the riders are to honor the crew of the Omni Flight medical helicopter who died in a crash in Georgetown last fall. On April 15th, the riders will end their journey at the Myrtle Beach Convention Center, where they will again honor the Omni Flight crew and others. 
Mike Abernathy, chief flight physician with the University of Wisconsin MedFlight program, talked about his 18 years with the program in an article this week regarding the service's upcoming 25th anniversary on April 22nd. Dr. Abernathy estimates that no physician in the country has made more medical flights than he has. At 50 years of age, the article says that Mike does not necessarily look like a physician. His hair reaches his shoulders. He quotes Jimmy Buffett songs, likes Chicago's gritty Billy Goat Tavern, and lives on rural property just south of the Wisconsin-Illinois line. Dr. Abernathy is passionate about the MedFlight program, however, and proud of the fact that UW's Flight crews are one of the only few in the country to staff with attending level physicians trained in emergency medicine. In a story that was reported in a previous podcast, the Australian Nursing Federation says that the Northern Territory government has failed to come clean about the conditions nurses will face if they take a contract with CareFlight who is overseeing the territory's aeromedical services for six months while the government tenders a permanent contract. CareFlight says staff will be employed on individual contracts. Yvonne Falk from the Northern Territory branch of the Australian Nursing Federation says the contracts fail to outline exactly what each nurse will receive. The Territory Health Department says nurses will be able to apply for leave without pay, so their previous employment in the department will be secured while they work with CareFlight. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I am interviewing Raleigh Parrish, founder and webmaster of FlightWeb.com. Raleigh worked as a flight nurse for 13 years with Help Flight in Billings, Montana and Northwest MedStar in Spokane, Washington. He now works in quality improvement and clinical informatics with a primary focus on cardiac services at the Providence Sacred Heart Hospital. Raleigh started FlightWeb in 1995 to help individuals in the air medical community communicate using innovative new technologies. In addition to FlightWeb, he assists with a number of other websites, including the Air Medical Physicians Association, the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems, the Concern Network, and the Association of Professional Flight Chaplains. Raleigh is a graduate of the Walla Walla Community College Nursing School and is currently pursuing studies at the Washington State University. He lives in Spokane, Washington, with his wife and three teenage boys. Raleigh is from Trout Lake, Washington, which is a small town north of Portland, Oregon, and has now lived in Spokane for 15 years. Welcome to the podcast, Raleigh, and thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate the chance to be here. Well, it is such a pleasure to have you, as I've been a huge fan of FlightWeb for years, and I feel it is really the go-to site in our air medical community for just all kinds of information. So it's just uh, great having you on, Raleigh. Thank you. What? Uh, let's let's start at the beginning. What was the genesis of FlightWeb? Uh, did it start as a website, or did it move into that format later? 
Well, actually, uh, the website started uh, to help support a listserv or email mailing list back in 1995 called Flight Med, um, and that's pretty much where the name came from was the website for Flight Med, and so we just uh, picked Flight Web as a name that seemed like it would fit. Mm-hmm. Did it? Um, uh, is the is the listserv still running? Uh, the the FlightMed listserv is still running, um, not nearly as active as it used to be, um, but um, it's all there's quite a few members. There's th- a few thousand members that receive the messages, but there's really only a handful of people that ever post. I see. Yeah, I remember. I I think I was on that early on, but it was it became very hard. I mean, it just filled your box up with so many uh, different postings. So, uh, but I've always, as I said, been a fan of the website because you're always, um, you know, the first or one of the first to uh, have uh, breaking news. But uh, so early on, how did you get the idea for doing FlightWeb? This was back, what, in 1995. So that's right when kind of the internet was first starting. Right. And if you think back at that time, the uh, the Internet at that time, a lot of people were using um, modems uh, connecting to libraries right. or university computers. Um, at the time, the Internet, um, when people thought of the Internet, it wasn't even the World Wide Web that people thought of when they went online. Um, and so in the early days, we basically looked uh, to see what resources were around for Air Medical, and there really weren't any resources at that part, point in time. There was only one website that had to do with a flight program, um, and so uh, we decided to put together a website for the flight program I worked at at the time. I see. Um, it, what happened, though, is the uh, the hospital we worked at didn't have their own website for the hospital, so they asked us to take that website down. And so in response to that, we thought, well, let's, let's work on a website for the whole air medical community then, um, not just our own individual flight program, and that's where it kind of all started. I see. Did you have others that were helping you from the program or from the community? Actually, I had two people were instrumental in all of this. One, Alan Doberwalski, who was a flight nurse with me at the time. Um, We uh, talked about, you know, all the different options and what things we could do together to work on this. Um, We'd also made contact with David Kearns uh, Mm -hmm. through the Internet. And so uh, he was instrumental, too, and just bouncing ideas off of and, you know, uh, helping to figure out what to do there. I see. Yeah, in fact, your name came up because we talked about the Concern Network in the last podcast and um, that you had helped out with them, too. Right. Is so as your vision at that time for uh, flight web is is that kind of, you know as it exists today was that kind of the vision you had in 1995? Well, not necessarily. Um, originally, like I said, it was purely a uh, a support framework for the community, which was FlightMed. Um, so the idea was if there's um, information, resources, files that need to be shared, that sort of thing, that the, that would all be housed on that website. Um, what has become is more the, the community that was in FlightMed, the mailing list, has transferred into the forums, basically. Mm-hmm. And that was new. That was never the original game plan. I see. And you talked about uh, the names. Is um, were you able to get the domain FlightWeb fairly easy? Was that how you came up with that, or, or 
did you look for domain names and then decide or say no I want to call it flight web and then look for a do domain name well we tried to um, we tried to come up with a new name that wasn't used by a flight program so you know there we didn't have much of an imagination I guess you know but um, so it just kind of came to us that or me that the website for flight med flight web that's a new term it hadn't been used before right um, yeah. but the the funny thing was when i went online to see if there was a domain available for that um flightweb.com was already taken and oh, really? it, it was actually yeah and it's actually still owned by klm airlines um as a employee uh website and so that's why i never went with flightweb uh or .org i should say uh, flightweb.org is what I was originally looking for. Oh, I see. Um, okay. But flight, yeah, flight, flightweb.com was still available, even though it was never designed to be a company or or anything like that. I see. I, I thought you meant com, and I was going to say, geez, did you have to 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 buy it? Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the features of FlightWeb and how they got started. Um, you had mentioned the forum section. Let's talk about that. It seems like that was kind of an outgrowth of the uh, FlightMed mailing list then right the um that was a actually a difficult decision to make and it took quite a bit of time because um the idea was just to basically try to create one place where everybody in the community could come together and and, and share information and not have a, a place for just the paramedics and just the nurses and just the pilots and just the the communication specialists but one place um to kind of share that information and so um, it seemed like with with the, the type of group that we had, the email was the most convenient way. And that at, in the early days, um, and it's not so early, I guess, but the website forums were not as convenient for a lot of people to use. So I held off from using that mm -hmm. that format. Um, but then I realized that it was just a matter of time before a, a forum like that was created. So we made that decision to set it up to say, okay, we're we're going to, you know, provide this service for our own members to use because if we don't, someone else will um, eventually. So that so it was kind of a almost I don't want to say begrudgingly, but we went forward um, with that. And it, the ironic thing is that it actually took off and was actually easier for people to use and used more, and the mailing list then started slowing down. I see. What have been some of the hot topics um, that you've had since putting it up? Oh, let me think. Um, actually, people, listeners can probably come up with hot topics um, quicker than I can, but um, there's always the crew configuration type arguments yes. um, oh. as far as what's the best flight crew type member, um, what's the best... Um, what's the best model for air medical transport, all, you know, the types of things that um, the people probably want to talk about at EMTC or they might talk about, but it might not be the best forum to do that. So they end up trying, you know, talking about it online. Um, we try really hard to discourage people from talking about specific companies. Um, I know there's a lot of people that want to do that, um, but it's uh, something that we just try to discourage to maintain an atmosphere of professionalism. Right. Do you have to then moderate sometimes when someone has maybe posted up something? Uh... We do. Um, I actually have a couple of people that help with that process. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Mike Mims and Brian Jefferson are two individuals that help, and there are a few others that have um, their own special forum areas. Um, 
but we try to set up guidelines and not so much rules, but rules of engagement, uh, you know, ahead of time. So that all we have to do is say, hey, this this is what the guidelines are, you know, and refer back to that and not actually moderate individual posts. Um, but really, it's the, 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 the moderate, I really want to stay away from that, but really it's to protect individuals, you know, from saying things that will get themselves in trouble uh, with their employers or or might get them in trouble in the future because um, it's just really easy to do a web search on someone's name and pull up all their posts and things that they might have said, you know, a few years ago show up. Um, right. So that's what the moderation is, to, is really to protect people and, and protect companies from, you know, from things that are really hard to verify or validate but really easy for someone to say. So in other words, if I'd go in and make a post, it's going to show up immediately, but you guys are reading it, your team is reading the things, and if it's a post that doesn't meet the guidelines, then that's pulled and I'm sent a message on why it was. Right, if mm-hmm. it's if it's obvious or blatant, but not, we're not, uh, I don't moderate myself that much at all anymore, but the... Um, it's possible for a, a whole conversation to get up and running um, before any moderator has a chance to look at it. So we do have a feature. I'm not sure how many people know about it, but there's a, a feature where people can report a post and then that'll send yes, an email notice that. to a moderator to say, you know, Hey, take a look at this. This it's, is out of line. You know, yeah. Right. Okay. Another feature that uh, I know a lot of people use is your uh, job center and then also the classified ads. Um, when did that all start? And um, can you talk about, you know, I, I know you've monetized that a bit and talk about the revenue that you get from those. Right. The classified ads were basically started to meet demands, you know, people that wanted to post notices, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we switched over to the job center system um when there was software available that could help manage that. And there is software that helps with the classified ads, but it's more along the lines of, you know, selling cars or houses or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so is this a so database, they, Raleigh, that's running in the background? Yeah, but it's a okay. special, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a professional grade database that runs the, the job center software now that's used by organizations all around the world, basically, um, for job postings. Um, and that actually works fairly well. Um, and I think it's a good service for the flight programs too, because for a fairly small amount of, about as much as it costs to post an ad in a, in a classified ad in, in a city paper, they can have an ad running nationwide, you know, for 30 days, basically letting people know. And not only that, it, it, uh, the members, the, the, the job seeker members, they get an email instantly when a new job is posted. And there's a feed to um, some of the larger job uh, databases like monster.com and that sort of thing so that people that use those services automatically get a post um, Mm -hmm. or it it shows up in those database searches as well. Yeah, anytime I've been recruiting, I've always used that precisely with what you said. And I think the other big issue is that, you know, we're a specialized type of service. I mean, aeromedical, it's not like you're going to find someone necessarily in your local area, especially if it's a smaller uh, community or town, um, you know, you, you need someone that has, you know, flight nurse or flight paramedic or, you know, communications background. Um, right. And you're right for the, the bang for the dollars there too. So has the job center then, uh, is that have more activity than the classified ads? 
now. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but, but part of that's because I've turned off cl- the classified ads to, to drive more focus towards the job center. I see. Um, so the classified ads really um, isn't used that much. You know, I think people post like they have a helmet to sell or they're looking for a helmet. Um, the other piece of that that I have never been able to figure out how to do best, but for the education, uh, the different classes that different uh, companies oh. provide, you know, a central location so that if someone's looking for a training class on a particular topic that they can see yeah, if they, know, if in they've one missed place it at, where those classes are available. Right, if they've missed it at their place, they can go to right. another program to get it. Okay. And, of course, uh, the other thing, too, with classified, this is, you know, eBay's and Craigslist and all that, you know, especially if it's, you know, you're selling something. Although, again, your example of a flight helmet would be something quite specialized that right. a lot of people go to eBay for. So Right. Um, the other area of your website uh, that seems to get used a lot um, and maybe not as much recently is, is, is the polls. Um, you have quite a bit on there and you can go back and look at the results. Um, how often do you put up a poll and what are some of the uh, more popular topics uh, over the years? Well, the polls that you're referring to are, are um, they haven't really had new polls posted in quite some time. And, and the, there are two reasons for that. One is that um, most of the poll questions were either my own personal questions or questions that someone would send in and say, hey, I'm looking at this. What do you think? When we A few, couple of years ago, when we switched to the new forum system, every forum post can have its own poll. So it's, it's, it kind of um, made the other poll redundant and not as necessary because it, it, basically every, everyone that has an account can set up their own poll now. But again, not, I'm not sure everybody realizes that or, or notices. Well, that, that's, I, I did not know that. So that's, right. that's a good thing to, uh, for listeners to, to understand that. So you keep the polls section up really kind of as historical right now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's it, the other piece of that too, is that it's, it shouldn't ever be viewed as anything remotely um, scientific or statistically valid. Um, it's just the people that happen to visit the website, that particular time frame what their opinion was that day. Um, they, you could have had multiple people from the same flight program, the, all sorts of things, issues like that, that we, you know, so it's, it's purely an opinion poll. Right. And you kept those open for a certain length of time. and um, Right. Yeah. Uh, talk about the calendar section. Um, can individuals post up items themselves or do you have to enter them? The uh, the way the calendar works is people can submit events, um, but I limit the events to uh, those events that are of either national or regional significance. Um, and a lot of that is just a, just to keep the workload down to a uh, a minimum. Um, I don't post classes that are just for a specific site um, or a specific you know location and that sort of thing. Um, so that's that's the limiting factor. There's just the the classes or events or conferences that are you know of a regional or national nature. Got you. And then you have a big section on it's called the Air Medical Transport Registry. I mean, is this fairly up to date, or how do you keep it up to date? And then finally, how does that compare with the Adams database? Have you have you done a comparison on you know looking at how accurate the data is? 
Right. The Aeronautical Transport Registry is, it really is, uh, supports Dr. Ira Blumen at UCAN, uh, University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, basically he, he owns that database and that data set. And the reason it's on FlightWeb is to, so that people can view their information and update it um, in a more timely manner. Um, and so he manages that. He, upda- he updates that website. And I just kind of make sure that it is all working from the back end point of view. The difference with Adams is there's a couple key differences. One is it's for internal, you know, the industry use basically. Um, and it fills the void. I'm not sure how many programs are not AIMS members, but it, there was a time when not every flight program was an AIMS member. So the AIMS directory was not an, an all-encompassing list of flight programs either. Um, the Adams database too is updated infrequently. And so there might be cha- changes in program status, that sort of thing, um, that it takes a while before it shows up on the Adams database. And the, well, the other piece that's a little bit different is the, the actual information that's tracked um, as far as, you know, things like crew con- configuration, aircraft, um, you know, how many aircraft, where they're located, that sort of thing. I see. So the, the database is up to date. It's kept up to date, but then a program can go in and update it themselves too. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I think Adams is the same. Adams publishes, you know, right at AMTC time, the uh, disc. Uh, but then I think if you go in later, there's the public area and the and the program area. You can, you know, update, and that's updated in the database. But it, it's right. obvi- obviously not on your CD. So, well, that's good. Thanks for explaining that. Um, you know, it seems like everybody now is, you know, using RSS feeds, Twitter, Facebook. I know you have a presence in, in all those areas just by looking at the website and seeing uh, what you're doing with Twitter and Facebook. How has that changed the website? And do you see these tools drawing more visitors to the site? Is that why you're doing it? Um, I don't know that they draw more visitors to the site because that's not that's never been my focus. It's more been providing information to people. So that's why the RSS feeds and Twitter work fairly well is, is to, for people that use those services, they can get that, that information sent to them and not actually have to come to the website to get it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that both of those do help for people that use those services. Um, There's a ton of opportunity with Facebook that I just have not gotten into just because of time. Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunity there, it, and it's a you know I, I've been following social media and it's just it's you know trying to pin it down is difficult and then even Facebook itself is changing constantly and what you can do with groups and pages and then of course privacy has been a big issue of late too. You um you can register at FlightWeb uh, or you can just be a visitor. So what do you get? for access when you register and do you track that data on how many people are registered versus just regular visitors? Right. Um, so I'll ask the la- answer the last question first. I don't track or monitor who's registered, who's not, how many visitors come that are registered versus not. The, the, really the point of registering is to get access to other little features that are might be more convenient to you or to an, an individual user. The one thing I need to explain is that the main website with the stories and the forum are two separate um, 
databases, two separate systems, and so you have to have a, a login or an account on both of them to be able to be, you know, have access to those features. The on the main website, um, originally there was a forum that was part of that system, and that's what the user logins were for. So you could get access into that and post messages. When we switched to the new forum system a couple of years ago, um, it's a, like I say, a separate username, separate database. Um, so that's the one that if if someone's wanting or considering signing up for an account, that's the one to go towards, not necessarily the one on the front page or the main page. I see. Okay. Well, one of the, I think, very wonderful features, and it's usually during a very sad time when there's a, a crash, uh, you blacken uh, the website and then also put up a condolence page where comments can be made from individuals from the community, family members, anybody that you know knew people from the crash. Um, and I know from my own personal experience with the Duke Lifelight crash in 2000 how important that was to our crew and uh, families of the crew, uh, of the um, John Holland who uh, died in the crash. And, and then just to me personally, to, to read those, I would go in every day or multiple times a day and read those. Um, and then you also, you know, put those in a condensed uh, form for the program. Tell our listeners about this service and, you know, how, how you came about providing this and, um, you know, what exactly you do provide to the program that's had a crash um, when you take the uh, condolence page down. Right. So the reason it started was um, in the, like I said, the flight med mailing list or in the forum, people would post um, and still do heartfelt comments um, either to the crews or the family members, that sort of thing. And But the problem is, is that the, those people a lot of times aren't members and never see those comments. And so that's what drove this was to put it all in one place where, okay, we could actually hand it off to the people that were actually would benefit from it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, that's pretty much the, the tradition. Uh, condolence book is set up once the names have been released publicly. Um, and anyone can leave uh, any message they want. I don't typically have to moderate those. It's always, you know, theoretical that that might happen, but I haven't had to do that um, other than to remove duplicate entries. Mm-hmm. Um at the end, it, actually, after about a week or two, the, the number of entries um, really taper down um, to not very many. And so the condolence books are closed for further entry. Um, and that's because I print them up or have them printed up and, and bound professionally and um, printed off. Um, and a copy is sent to the family members. Um, and additional copies can be ordered if they want them. Um, so that's how that works. When did you start that, Raleigh? I'd have to look. Um, boy, I'd have to look back at the original date to see when that was. But the condolence books were actually started before the current web system that we're even using. So it's it's been at least ten years. It's, uh, well, I I I know all of us in the community never like to see the site blackened out, but uh, we you know we know how important that is. So hopefully, we won't see it again. But uh, right, it it, uh, it it is a 
central place that I know everybody knows uh, to go to, not only for the news of the crash and all the up-to-date information, and then you catalog things very nicely too, updates to stories. Um, but uh, it's a very meaningful thing that you uh, provide the community. Thank you. You're involved with another number of other websites in your intro. I talked about some of those, but uh, can you tell our listeners how you um, got involved and what specifically you're doing? Um, let's see. I, I help out with the Kames website by just by basically host the information um, that can, that's contained there, um, and mm-hmm. same thing with the Air Medical Physician Association. Um, Let's see the flight, the new flight chaplains uh, association, the, the Association of Professional Flight Chaplains, um, just kind of help with consulting, I should say, with that website. Um, and then with the Concern Network, there is a website, but there's also more of the behind-the-scenes stuff that actually makes those notices go out. That that's also something I'm involved in from a technical point of view. I see. So it, it was really kind of you're kind of a go-to person because of your technical knowledge. And I guess that'll lead into my next question is how did you, uh, you know, being trained in clinical, uh, you know, nursing and going into being a flight nurse and now working in quality improvement, how did you get interested in web development and, and technology? Well, it was just a, uh, get started in it. You know, is it the, the being at the right place at the right time in the early days of the internet? Um, I remember, uh, Back then, our 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 own flight program at the point at the time didn't have a computer to really do much data collection or that sort of thing. It just wasn't available, um, and so the the internet was, you know, and this was just kind of where my attention went. And so it, it was just um, it, it just kind of added on as the need arose. You know, it was a challenge to figure out how to do something or how to set it up or how to how to build it, and just kind of added on over time. Did you take classes in it, or is it mostly no, self-learned? No, it's all been it's all been self-learned. Yeah, yeah. And you're you're like me. I kind of you just start doing it. Um, I heard you mention a little earlier. So, do you do some actual programming yourself? Um, I do. Yeah, um, uh-huh. some of the services that we we've talked about, I've had to like the condolence books. There was programming that went into that. The the classified ads, actually, the concern network. Um, the back end of all that is uh, completely from the ground up was was programmed to to make that all work um, and a few other things. So that's well, just the, the the amazing part of open source software, and that's kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of how it all works. Is it makes that possible? Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I know there's a lot of geeks out there, me included, uh, and talk about some of the technology behind. FlightWeb is, you know, how it is hosted, what type of language you're using for programming, and how you're tying some of those databases together. Right. Um, the the website is actually hosted uh, at an internet provider called Pair.com. If anyone's interested in that, um, the the it uses the Apache web server on a free BSD um, based server using PHP. Mm-hmm. Perl, and the database is MySQL. the The main website runs on a uh, CMS or content management system called Geeklog, 
and the forums all run on um, uh, IPB, which is a one of the open yeah one of the open source um, forum systems. And so then you tie all that together. So all that ties yeah. together, and, yeah. and so that's where because it's me tying it together. That's why you have different <laughs> different systems sometimes. And so it doesn't tie together very well because there is it is not one uh, solution that you buy off the shelf. Well, and and nor could it be. But I mean, I think to a regular user, you know, when you go to the site, you wouldn't know that. You know, I mean, right. because it all flows very well together. But there is. Uh, but if there's you know, weird, if there's weird things that don't work, that's why. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. But uh, that's why you know nothing ever is a hundred percent. Even you know right. the, the best stuff from you know Apple or Microsoft. There's always you know fixes to everything. So right. Um, and, and I guess speaking of that, you know, of course, security has been such a big topic, and with all computers, every you know people getting hacked and stuff. Have you had any problems with that of, of databases Not really. getting hacked? Um, I've noticed that, uh, you know, there have been automated systems that try to set up user accounts. And once in a while, uh, they'll do that, and they'll actually post notes in the forums. But that's about it. Really haven't haven't seen too much of that. And I think it's just by luck or because it's not a big enough community to attract much attention. I see. And those automated ones, they're trying to set up ads and stuff usually, right? Well, yeah, yeah. or they're trying to increase um, their position in web search engines. So they oh, po what they right. do is they post links to websites in forums that so that it makes up. it look like those websites are more popular than they really are. Yeah, got you. Well, what, uh, what do you have planned for the future for flight web well um i definitely would like to upgrade the main website it's just uh that's a daunting project um but i do have a game plan just not a, a timeline um the, but the main thing is i really want to you know do more opening this up to other people that might want to take on you know help out with a section or or a feature that they'd like to see done but not, are just aren't sure how to do it from a technical point of view mm -hmm. um and make it more about the community and not so much you know uh just what I can do individually I see how many times have you actually changed the look and format of flight web in the past i know there's been refreshes in the past i've oh, let's see if i think back there have been from the very beginning um one two three four four or five major paradigm shifts or major major changes mm -hmm. um and it's been a few years that's why it's, it's with well past due time to do that again and it was was that precipitated by because it was new things that you had or a change in internet service provider that change in internet service provider change in demand for hey we want to do this and changing what i could what i was capable of doing um and so that's yeah so all those things coming together how many visitors do you get uh you know in a day i mean average day week month um, I estimate around a hundred thousand, but it's hard a month. Um, but wow. it's hard to tell how many of those are repeat people coming back over and over. I mean, I can I can tell that if I wanted to. Um, how many of those are search engines? How many of those are the general public? You know, clicking on a a link and 
that they find in Google or something like that versus actual flight crew members and that sort of thing. I see. Um, but I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to that because um, my focus has never been about increasing traffic or, or making it popular. It's always been to try to, to meet the need. And if, if there's a need by five people, then that's as good as by 5,000. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And especially, you know, in the early days, it was always, well, we got this many hits. Well, you know, heck you could, go to a page and have seven hits on one page, depending on what's on the page. And I I've right. always, I always like to look at unique visitors. So, you know, cause if I go back to your site five times in one day, it's only still going to count as, as one. Right. Um, but it's still interesting because a lot of the internet service providers give you um, some data just to kind of look at where people are accessing from of you. Is it mainly us based or are you seeing more, Actually, there's hits. a lot of traffic, international traffic, what mm -hmm. I consider a lot, um, mm -hmm. more than I would ever expect. So I, I try to keep that in mind, that it's not just a community of uh, United States flight crew members, that there are people from Europe, from Asia, Australia, all over the world. Um, but we're talking small numbers of people, too. But right. when you think about, you know, when somebody in the United States posts in the forum, you know how they do things, or what, how they, how they, um, how they view air medical transport. That someone in New Zealand might be reading that and implementing, or having a conversation about that post. You know, so so people can keep that in mind. There's there's a lot of potential for influence well beyond just their local um, area. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point, and that's why the stats are important, so that you can can mold that and know that fact that you're getting a lot of hits from, you know, England or Australia or, right. you know, wherever. Um, do you notice uh, from a search engine perspective, um, uh, you're getting a lot of referrals from Google, I'm sure is probably your biggest one, but. Yeah, pretty much. I, again, I don't spend a lot of time researching or analyzing that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but there are, and I'm not sure why this happens, but there, frequently I'll do a web search for something air medical related, and it seems like FlightWeb pops or a post anyway pops up on that. Um, so it it really does show me that there aren't a lot of other places for certain topics anyway, you know, to go through to find information about them. So that, I just want to encourage people to, you know, if they've got a question or if they want to talk about something, you know, bring it up. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about FlightWeb? I don't think so. It's uh, I think we've covered it. Okay. Well, I know it's uh, as I've told you many times and others that you know this has really been a huge labor of love of yours, and uh, I want to thank you on behalf of the community for all that you've done with FlightWeb, and will continue to do because it really is the the go to place for. Um, information about our community. Well, thank you, Ed. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. 
Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please continue to keep your thoughts and prayers with the crew, family, members, and friends of the Hospital Wing Air Medical Program after their tragic crash. Take care and fly safe.